Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We're now more than 100 days into the legislative session with major budget bills still hanging in the balance. After weeks of discussion about critical race theory in Idaho classrooms, are lawmakers any closer to a compromise? I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Hayat Noramine of the Idaho Statesman, Clark Corbin of the Idaho Capital Sun, and James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio join the pundits to help make sense of why the legislature still hasn't adjourned. The debate over critical race theory in schools and more. But first, the legislature's wild ride continued this week, starting with the Senate attempting to override Governor Brad Little's veto on Senate Bill 1136, the first in a pair of bills to trim the governor's emergency powers and put them under legislative oversight. Last Friday, Governor Little announced that he would veto both pieces of legislation. The Senate's override attempt failed by one vote, but there was still House Bill 135, which would limit the governor's ability to extend an emergency disaster declaration beyond 60 days. Under that bill, the legislature would decide whether the emergency declaration may be extended. The House took up that override attempt on Wednesday. House Bill 135 protects the separation of powers, does not grant the legislative body any additional powers. In fact, it protects those powers. It indicates that all jobs are essential. Nothing was more offensive to me than being told that your job was not essential, but somebody else's job was essential. Putting food on the table at my house, that's pretty essential. And I think that's uh, for everybody. Their jobs are essential. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be doing them. That's why it's called work. Our founding fathers had the wisdom to recognize that governments have the ability to continue to take away liberties a little bit at a time. And they said, you know what? These rights, those constitutional rights, can never be abridged or can never be infringed upon. And yet that happened in our state. I am extremely disappointed that that happened in our state. And our citizens expect our action to protect their constitutional rights and to ensure that this never, ever happens again. And so I'd ask that you support the motion to override. A group of people cannot make immediate decisions. And in emergencies, you have to make immediate decisions. You can't have more than one cook in the kitchen. That doesn't work. The House approved the veto override in a 48-19 vote. The veto override must now go before the Senate and get two-thirds support from that body. Earlier in the week, the Senate introduced a bill that would expand the hunting and trapping of wolves in Idaho. The fast track legislation would open up wolf trapping to a year round season on private grounds. Idahoans would also be able to purchase as many wolf hunting tags as they want. Senator Van Burtenshaw led that debate, arguing that depredation is a danger to ranchers who lose their livestock to wolves. The purpose of this legislation is to control the population. 
not to wipe them out. There's never been any discussion in the working group of a complete annihilation of the wolf population. There was the discussion that every time we talk about how many wolves the fish and game and or this um, group, um, that we are now going to contract with private contractors. Um, when asked about who these private contractors were and what kind of um, uh, threshold or criteria they'd be held to, um, I was told it was too broad of a contract and it was likely expensive and we should just leave it to the free market. The bill made it off the Senate floor in a party line 26 to 7 vote and moved through the House Conservation and Resources Committee on Thursday with a due pass recommendation. It now goes before the full House. On Thursday, the House approved House Bill 377 after extensive debate about potential discrimination in public schools. Supporters of the bill claim students in public schools are being taught about so-called critical race theory. In other words, curriculum that critically examines the overt and subtle ways racism affects society in such a way that makes some students feel uncomfortable. The bill would mandate students not be required to personally adopt tenants that suggest any race, sex, ethnicity, religion, or national origin is inherently superior or inferior to another. The bill would apply to all students and teachers in Idaho's public institutions ranging from kindergarten to universities. Opponents of the bill argue it could stifle open discussion in education. One way we unite is by ensuring a classroom environment that is free from discrimination and where the dignity and beliefs of each and every student are respected. You will notice this bill does not prohibit uh, teaching any particular content from the Civil War to the Holocaust to the French Revolution to sexism, racism, communism or any other ism. It may not make us all look the same because we truly are different. And that's what makes our educational system unique. Universities give people a chance to explore. We are not all the same and we need to look different. I believe that the role of education in our society is to prepare our young people to enter the real world, prepared to think critically, and to make important decisions as members of our community. First of all, yes, this is occurring. We see it. I've heard from many parents, professors, teachers, students um, from all over, including our state, of certain things being taught in their classes that are making them feel uncomfortable with what's being um, taught or making them feel lesser than uh, those that are around them. The bill passed the House in a 57-12 vote. Less than an hour after that vote, the governor and the State Board of Education addressed critical race theory controversies in a joint press conference. Idaho's public education system is locally driven. If parents or teachers spot something that concerns them, they should bring it to the attention of the teacher, principal, superintendent, or school board trustees and root out the problem at the local level which is the closest and most responsive to our students and parents. The legislature will be debating bills that would impact every learning environment from kindergarten to graduate education. 
every student is entitled to a position-neutral education. I want to repeat that. Every student is entitled to a position-neutral education. This means that students are free to develop their own opinions and ideas without bias or prejudice from an instructor, course, material, or even system. These are not small matters to us. Like all Idahoans, we want a system that encourages forums of intellectual discussion, where speech is not restricted and all viewpoints are respected. And then I think we need to turn our attention to actually collecting objective data. Too much of the conversation in the legislature is based on uh, anecdotal uh, evidence. Um, there isn't a lot of fact or data around this debate. And so I think as a state board, we need to take a leadership role in that area. And I think we need to ask our universities um, to collect data about the climate, to, to, to collect data from their students around, do they feel like they are in a place that can, uh, where they can speak freely. I get really concerned when the word indoctrination gets thrown around. I just, I just have seen no evidence of that. And so when you throw that around loosely in a way that undermines the confidence of the educational system, I'm, that causes me great concern. And clearly, if, if there's any evidence that comes out that there actually is that type of indoctrination happening in our K-12 system, the state, the state board is going to act. Um, I just have a hard time believing um, based on my confidence in the local school boards that, that we're going to find that. But let, let the work proceed and, and we're going to stay engaged and if action is required, uh, our board is prepared to uh, lead in that way. Joining us today for the pundits, we have Hayat Noramine of the Idaho Statesman, Clark Corbin of the Idaho Capital Sun, and James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio. Clark, I wanted to start with you. Critical race theory has hijacked a lot of the session, but this isn't the first time we have heard concerns about issues of race and social justice coming up on campuses and in public schools. Yeah, you're right, Melissa, and, and it's really kind of ground the session uh, to a halt this year, but it kind of reminds me about some of what we heard uh, with the higher education debates in the previous legislative sessions. Uh, I think it was last year that they it took three uh, budgets overall to, kill, uh, to pass a higher education budget in Idaho. And legislators were particularly concerned, particularly Republicans in the Idaho House, about Boise State University and some of the diversity and inclusivity programs at Boise State University, uh, specifically like um, events that were open to anybody, uh, but like a pride graduation, black graduation, things of that nature. Uh, and again, the higher education budget this year, along with the public school budget for teacher salaries, is one of the two major budgets held up that's a big part of this logjam that's preventing adjournment right now. And Hayat, you covered the education hearing on the House side as well as the floor debate on this bill. And it, it did seem like among the teachers and students and the rest of the public who testified that there was much support for this legislation. No, um, there were perhaps only two people um, in support of the bill, and one of them was the Idaho Freedom, or well, the Idaho Freedom Foundation was neutral, but um, there was maybe one other person in support of the bill. Um, every, you know, overwhelmingly, the hearing came from people who were opposed to House Bill um, 377, and um, you know absent from the conversation um, noticeably is people, you know, particularly students of color. Um, and something that's really notable to me about the bill is that 
you know, when you're talking about something, it, when you're claiming that something's problematic or indoctrinating students, you need to be really specific about what you're talking about um, to ensure that you're not stifling speech about race or, um, you know, broader conversations about racism. Otherwise, it can, in fact, stifle speech and, and be harmful to students of color. So, um, you know, that's something that was pointed out on the House floor that there wasn't, you know, definitions about critical race theory. Um, and in fact, the American Bar Association defines it as something that can't be defined, um, something that's, you know, constantly evolving. Um, so that's that's something that's really that could potentially be problematic in the bill that, you know, there's there's not a clear definition of what's being, um, you know, opposed or, or um, you know, pointed out in the bill. And James, I wanted to ask you about that because one of the bill sponsors, Representative Wendy Horman, who you know is is a champion for public education and has carried so many school budgets over the years, was adamant that this would not prevent the teaching of anything related to racism or sexism or, as she put it, any ism. But there were there was a lot of concern that because this bill is so ambiguous, that it might in fact have the opposite effect of stifling conversation about the effects of, say, redlining or uh, you know, internment camps in Idaho or the legacy of the Trail of Tears, that sort of thing. Right, and, th and that's the exact kind of line of thinking that we heard from the ACLU in that committee hearing too was, you know, it's vague enough that it might just have a chilling effect to the point where teachers are going to be concerned about potentially violating this law, that they really don't want to teach anything that might be seen as controversial, um, whether or not it actually has anything to do with critical race theory, you know, in and of itself. Uh, and, and I mean, the other thing too, is that uh, the supporters of this bill have kind of come up with a lot of um, anecdotal evidence. We've seen, you know, maybe some one-offs here in a school district, but we don't even really know the specifics of those and whether or not like there were any kind of consequences for that teacher or, you know, what might've actually even happened uh, if it did. Uh, you had Representative Heather Scott uh, say on the House floor during the debate that she heard from a, you know, Boise area substitute teacher about how To Kill a Mockingbird was being used to, you know, uh, teach kids that uh, black people are always innocent, white people are evil, and that, uh, you know, there's a constant theme of black victimization, I believe, in an anti-white rhetoric that's, you know, pervasive in her uh, mind throughout Idaho schools. But um, you had several uh, former educators and uh, uh, school administrators like Representative Ryan Kirby and Representative Julie Yamamoto last week saying that, you know, these aren't widespread things. It might happen once in a while, but, you know, it's not pervasive. That obviously didn't prevent them from voting for House Bill 377, uh, but that's kind of where we stand right now. I, I want to talk a little bit about those budgets that are kind of being held hostage as a result of these negotiations going on. So many of the budgets that have died in the House have died because of one vote. So all of that to say, you don't need a lot of people to be convinced that House Bill 377 is the solution, that this is going to solve problems enough for them to get on board with the budgets. But Clark, do you get the impression that what the House passed this week is going to be enough to appease the far-right conservatives who have been bringing this up in the first place? Are you talking about the education budgets, Melissa? It, yeah, the, the education budgets. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see whether this is the end of it. I do get the sense from talking with legislators that they want to see House Bill 377 go through the process, that they want to see it go over uh, on the Senate side. If it passes there, they want to see whether the governor will take action and then uh, perhaps look at moving some of those budgets. And that could take several days, uh, as we know, uh, watching that process take forward, getting a bill uh, to the governor's desk and so forth. So it'll be interesting. I think that that that's the design of that bill is to free those budgets up and get them moving again. I think that was referenced uh, during the debate. Uh, it was very quickly from introduction to committee hearing to passing on the House floor. And, and that came up that this is kind of like the ticket to um, get those budgets unstuck and moving again. Whether that will be enough, I think we have to stay tuned in the next week or so and see. And I, I want to talk about those other budgets that are hanging out on the House reading calendar. As we know, Friday morning, the House adjourned for the day after being on the floor for less than 15 minutes. And there are a whole lot of things on that reading calendar that they could have taken up and didn't. It, it really seems like the House is holding out until perhaps the Senate addresses House Bill 37 or they get some sort of uh, reassurance that their concerns are gonna be taken um, seriously. Uh, Hayat, are, are you hearing anything about when the heck the legislature might adjourn? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> frankly. Um, you know, I, I mean, there's still a lot to be done, obviously, as you said. Um, the I, I'd be really interested to see, um, you know, the second emergency powers bill go through the Senate and whether they can have enough votes to even um, pass that, which the, the governor, to override the governor's veto. Um, if not, we could potentially see another emergency powers bill pop up. So um, it sure seems like there there could still be quite a lot to be done. And um, obviously, you know, uh, Representative Blanksma uh, this morning talked about um, a recess until September 1st to address other issues too. So, um, you know, this, this could potentially um, <laughs> beat the record-breaking uh, longest session um, by far. <laughs> Not necessarily a record I wanted to be around for. Uh, Jimmy, I wanted to ask you about the dynamic between the veto override attempts um, with those two bills that Governor Little vetoed last week on emergency powers and him signing the voter initiative bill, which was, uh, you know, according to the Idaho Capital Sun, widely opposed by people who contacted the governor's office. Is there some sort of calculation, do you think, on the governor's part about, okay, you know what, I can get away with vetoing a couple bills, but not everything that I think is controversial or might not, um, might not stand up in court, James? Yeah, I mean, you have to imagine that <laughs> with what was a veto-proof majority during the first round of votes for the House and Senate bills uh, on the emergency powers? That I mean, it, it took a lot uh, to flip those votes in the Senate. I believe it was four Republicans who defected, one in the House uh, for the House version of the bill. Um, you know, that's a, a, an immense amount of political capital that he spent right there, um, basically putting his foot down and saying, "No, these are the powers that are given to each of our." individual branches by the Constitution. Um, I don't think this is right. All of the other former 
Um, governors who are living say this is wrong, uh, you know, and, and really trying to make a PR case for it. Uh, as for the initiatives bill, I mean, this is something that the legislature has wanted since 2019, right after, uh, uh, you know, the Medicaid expansion initiative passed. Uh, you know, this is a little bit tuned down from the attempts in 2019 to, uh, you know, I guess make the initiative uh, process uh, harder. Some say it's impossible um, under this new standard that is currently in place. And uh, something else uh, that I guess House Minority Leader Elena Rebell mentioned this morning during um, the hearing introducing that resolution to potentially uh, extend this uh, legislative session into September is that uh, in addition to those um, new, I guess, restrictions on the initiative process that are now in law, uh, this new potential recess could have implications for uh, any referendum that might come up this year. Uh, under state law, referendums have to be um, the, well, I guess the signatures necessary to get a referendum on the ballot have to be collected within 60 days, but organizers can only collect those after the legislature actually fully adjourns sine die for the year. So, you know, if you're looking at, you know, May, uh, the weather's looking nice, people are going outside to, uh, you know, public events, maybe fairs are coming back this year after COVID, who knows. But if we're talking September, October, November, you know, snow's coming in the mountain towns. And if you have to get signatures from 35 legislative districts, that means you do have to go to Custer and Lemhi County. You can't just, you know, hang around Boise and Canyon counties. Well, and, and not only that, Clark, but when they are redrawing the legislative district boundaries, it's already a moving target during a redistricting year to get a voter initiative on the ballot. When you have just 18 legislative districts under the previous law that you needed to aim for. But with 35, that's a target that we don't, we don't even know what planet that target is on, right? Yeah, I mean, that was a, a big part of the opposition uh, to the bill is that which, you know, make it practically impossible to get initiative uh, on the ballot, uh, talk about how difficult it's been um, over the years. And we just don't see that many of them in, in Idaho. And like you said, going up from the 18 legislative districts or whatever it was uh, to now meeting 6% of signatures in all 35, it's quite a hurdle for exactly the reasons uh, that Jimmy mentioned, having to go to all those rural expansive counties and get um you know six percent of signatures from registered voters that'd be quite an undertaking and and we know after governor little signed that bill last saturday that reclaim idaho um, and their supporters are planning a, a court case is is that correct clark yeah that's what uh that's what they uh, have announced and so i think um we'll have to stay tuned and, and, and see how that plays out but yeah right away they indicated that uh uh, that they would challenge this. Uh, one other issue I wanted to bring up, we, uh, this is a story that broke last Friday that Representative Aaron Von Ellinger um, is under, uh, he is facing accusations of sexual assault. That, and we learned Monday that there is an open investigation at, uh, within the Boise Police Department about that accusation. Meanwhile, the House Ethics Committee is meeting next Wednesday, James. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so these uh, allegations are made by an adult uh, volunteer staffer in the GOP caucus, the House GOP caucus, as far as I know. Um, and she alleges, alleges that uh, she and Representative Von Ellinger went to dinner sometime in, in March. 
uh, and then at some point returned to his apartment uh, where she says that he forced her into oral sex, which under Idaho law is uh, defined as rape. Um, again, he is not in charge with the crime. Uh, Boise PD last Friday said that, no, there's no open investigation. And then suddenly on Monday said, oh, it's, re it's reopened now. Um, so that is ongoing. As for the ethics complaints, uh, yeah, we're going to have that public hearing on Wednesday. We'll see, uh, you know, what kind of a defense, uh, you know, he puts up and what, uh, you know, the committee does end up hearing. Uh, he has said that, no, this, this, uh, you know, sexual encounter was uh, absolutely consensual, um, denies any wrongdoing, um, you know, so that's going through the process. Uh, and we'll, we'll have to see, uh, you know, the potential consequences is he could get uh, a censure or a reprimand with or without restrictions. Um, at least my reading into the House rules, uh, he cannot be um, expelled as of right now. Uh, if there were some kind of felony um, charge or conviction, um, and again, he has not been charged with a crime, uh, then that is when expulsion would be on the table. As uh, we, we have about three and a half minutes left, and Hayat, I wanted to ask you, as we are 103 days now into the session, and this is your first legislati legislative session in Idaho, covering this for the Idaho Statesman, what are you going to be watching for in, I don't want to say in coming weeks, because hopefully it won't be that long, but over the next seven days, what's on your agenda to watch? Obviously, the education um, budget is going to be a big one, um, both higher education and K through 12. Um, I, you know, as you asked before, um, you know, a very good question is going to be whether that um, bill is going to be enough to, you know, pass through those budgets. Um, I, I will be interested in seeing how the Senate votes on the second emergency powers bill that um, pops up. Um, you know, as as we mentioned before, um, in the past they had voted 25 in favor, so they're they're only able to lose one vote. Um, if they lose two, then that'll be enough to you know scrap the bill. Um, and so and and that so that doesn't bode very well for them, considering that the sec the first emergency powers bill um, they had lost five votes. So um, yeah, I'll be I'll be interested to see that. Um, those are the two big issues, but um, you know, obviously, uh, the sexual assault allegations are going to be a, a major one, and um, and just the ongoing appropriations bills. You know, there's still the attorney general budget that's going to have to be passed. Um, yeah. So, something else on uh, the Senate with the emergency powers thing too is uh, Senator Mary Souza had a pre-planned vacation to Hawaii that she announced on the Senate floor. Um, if she doesn't have a substitute, then that changes the math too. Uh, and uh, I haven't done the, the calculations think, in my head, but yeah, go ahead, Clark. I think she said she might have a substitute showing up. Ah, there you go. But, uh, but yeah, it, it has to do with, but Jimmy, that's a really good point uh, because the math has to do with two thirds of the members present. So that's a really good point, uh, whether it was Sousa or anybody else uh, who's absent, a full slate uh, is 35 senators and uh, that, uh, what was it, 24 uh, is, the, is the number they need based on two thirds of a full slate is there. So it is important to be aware of how many are there. And one last issue that's kind of hanging out there that is addressed at least partly by Representative Blinksma's proposal to perhaps recess long term without per diem and come back in the summer is the issue of the billions of dollars of 
ARPA funds, American Rescue Plan Act funds. Um, Clark, with about 30 seconds left, uh, do you imagine that this is going to get support in the Senate to recess and then come back in late summer? I'm not sure. Representative Blakesmith said she wanted to get it printed and have the conversation this week about going home. The bill's really interesting because it would essentially allow the legislature to call itself back into session without having to wait for the governor. Obviously, that's a constitutional amendment that will be on next year's ballot for voters to decide if this bill passes, it would essentially let the legislature do that this year. So I think that's really interesting to watch going forward. We'll keep an eye on that. Thank you three for joining us and thank you for watching. We'll see you here next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho by the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.